Hello and welcome to Out with me, Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you are having a good day. First of all, I need to say a big thank you to everyone that got in touch with me after last week's episode with the brilliant Dan O'Neill. I loved that conversation too. I thought it was so interesting. Uh, If you haven't listened, Dan is a biologist and an explorer and he is just utterly fascinating and I loved sitting down and listening to him talk for an hour and just learning about his world. I received uh, lots of messages about that episode. One email that just read, science, this is all, thank you, from uh, Emily. So thank you for that, Emily. I'm really pleased that you enjoyed it. But it seemed that it really struck a chord with lots of people and it was something a bit different for this podcast. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, please have a listen. I've got another fantastic episode for you today with Luma Muffler, who is a writer, a teacher, an activist, a coach. She's so many things and I absolutely loved this conversation. She's recently written a book called Believe in Them, One Woman's Fight for Justice for Refugee Children. I loved this conversation and I really hope that you do too. But before then, as always, I've got a couple of listener emails that I would love to share with you and then we'll get into today's conversation. Hello, lovely Susie. Thank you. I've just finished listening to your latest episode with Emmett de Montre, and what can I say? It was a joy to listen to. I absolutely adore Out, as well as Big Kick Energy and Like-Minded Friends, and I listen every week. I've been meaning to email you for months now, but I've never found the courage. Well, here it is. I wanted to thank you in all the ways that Out and you have shone a light on our fabulous LGBTQIA community and how inclusive you are. The episode you did with Anna Richardson really meant a lot to me. As someone who came out as bisexual at 14, then thought I could be a lesbian at 21, then went back to identifying as bisexual, and then found the term pansexual in my late 20s, and I've identified like that ever since. I love how she mentioned that when you're in a same-sex relationship, you seem to be labelled as gay, and when you're in an opposite-sex relationship, you seem to be labelled as straight. Anyway, I hope this email finds you well, and thank you again for all that you do and all that you are. Looking forward to seeing you in Aberdeen. Kind regards, Christine, and you can definitely use my name. Thank you, Christine. As you know, if you've listened to all these series of Out, I try my best to get as many different people from our wonderful community as possible, and I'm really, really delighted that you have seen a bit of yourself in this show. And um, stick around, say hello to me when I'm in Aberdeen. I'm looking forward to those shows. Okay, let's have another one. Hello. So I've thought about messaging a number of times and actually did email once a few weeks back, but it bounced back because I spelt your name wrong. Brackets, I blame that on my dyslexic brain. I wanted to thank you for your podcast, not only as a gay woman, but also as a dyslexic woman. Hearing someone own all parts of themselves and thrive is lovely. I realised I was gay when I was 19 after a period of telling everyone that I was very confused on nights out at university. The anxiety I felt around this was huge. I didn't quite recognise myself at the time, now nine years ago. No one in my family was homophobic as such, but the idea of being gay was just not really a thing. It was always just, do you have a boyfriend yet? And gay was used as a term for bad at school. When I went into sixth form, I got a boyfriend, mainly so that people would stop asking me that question, but it very much felt like I was going through the motions of what was expected, as opposed to anything else. University was the first time I met anyone gay. They were in my friendship group and very much themselves. Them existing allowed me to finally consider what might be a possibility to me, rather than just shutting down that part of myself. Anyway, my anxiety and internalised homophobia led me to be sick for almost nine months, with my family generally worried. I went to the doctor a number of times and they could never find anything physically wrong with me. Although this was nine years ago, the idea that it could be anxiety or stress was never really discussed, and to quote the doctor, it would just pass. 
And to be fair to them, it did. But by the time I'd finally come out to my family later that year, the daily sickness had stopped and now only resurfaces now and then. So I'm not sure what I'm saying. Maybe that we build things up and it makes things worse, but also that we underestimate the impact of our upbringing and influences have. I'm pleased that things now have moved forward, but I still struggle to be myself. I look young and I'm fed up that at 28 people are still asking me if I'm at college. I'm fed up that throughout my life I'm always feeling like I have to prove myself. Owning parts of myself, my queerness, my dyslexia, my youthfulness is hard and exhausting, but hopefully it will get better. Thanks to the podcast, it's really helped me connect with the community. Despite my partner and I having no queer friends to talk to, it often feels like everyone else is fine with themselves and don't really need this, but I still do. So thank you. I'll stop waffling now and you can use my name. And that's from Helena. Helena, thank you so much for your email. And I'm so delighted that the podcast helps you connect to our community. And I think it's, I mean, I really relate to that feelings of struggling to be myself. It's something, I'm in my late 30s now and it's something that, I mean, I'm talking about it on stage in my current show, that it. I think it does take a long time to own all those different parts of yourself. And it sounds like you're doing great and I hope that you are. And I'm really pleased that the podcast has helped you in, in some way. That really means a lot to me. Thank you for all the emails that I received this week. And now let's go to the brilliant conversation that I have with Luma Muffler. I just want to put out a little warning at the top of this. There is a brief mention of suicide in this episode. So if that's something that you don't feel like you can listen to, maybe this episode isn't for you. Okay, let's get on with this conversation with the brilliant Luma Muffler. Oh, listener. Now, today's guest, I am genuinely excited and delighted to talk to, and I'm so delighted to share them with you. Luma Muffler is the CEO and founding director of Fuji Family, a non-profit organisation devoted to working with children survivors of war, which uses football, education and community to empower refugee children to integrate successfully. I have just finished reading Luma's astonishing book, Believe in Them, One Woman's Fight for Justice for Refugee Children. And I need to tell you, I couldn't put it down. You must read it. It is such a story of hope and the honesty in it. And I just couldn't put it down. Every single night, Alice and I were laying in bed and I would say, you just have to give me another 10 minutes. I have to get through this chapter. I have to finish this before the end. Her story is astonishing, a true tour de force of hope, encouragement, education, community, family, football, and so much more. Now, there's a lot of accomplishments that Luma has achieved, but I'll just share a few of them with you right here. She was named top 10 CNN Hero of the Year in 2016. In 2018, she was awarded the Diane von Fusterberg People's Choice Award and is the recipient of the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Service Award. I am so thrilled to talk to her today. Hello, Luma. Hey, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. How long has your book been in the world? Is this a new thing to be talking about it? So it came out in April of 22 in the United States, and it was released in the UK in June of this year. And so not very long. And it came out in the UK on June 20th, which is World Refugee Day. Which makes perfect sense. So that was pretty awesome. Absolutely. I mean, I'm encouraging everybody to go and pick up the book, so I don't want to go through it sort of bit by bit, but maybe a great place to start would be to ask you about the beginnings of your journey. I know that obviously you have such a, I mean, as we all should, such a desire to help young refugees, but obviously for you, that comes from a a personal place of being a child refugee yourself. Yeah. I think my story starts uh, back in Jordan. That's where I was born and raised. My grandmother, my mom's family left Syria in the 1960s during the first Assad regime and moved to Jordan. You know, my grandma packed up her five kids, just pregnant with her sick, and moved when they thought 
you know, Syria was going to change. My grandfather was skeptical. He's like, no, let me stay. It's going to blow over just like most coup attempts in the Middle East. And he ended up joining them a few months later after his factory was seized by the government and his brothers tortured, never to be seen again. And so they came to Jordan, rebuilt their lives. You know, I knew Syria because we'd go there in the summers. My grandmother, you know, never wanted us to forget that part of our history and would always take me to visit refugee camps. And you taught me some very valuable lessons. And the title of the book comes from something she said to me about believing in them. Like, don't feel sorry for refugees, believe in them. Yeah. Your grandmother's spirit really sort of sings through in the book. Yeah. I think that you can uh, really grasp who she was in your words. I love that you said that because I feel like I was trying to honor her and for people to understand her impact on my life. You know, everybody's like, when they ask like, oh, who's inspired you the most? I'm like, my grandma. Like, yeah, it's that simple. It's like my grandma was the one that had the most impact on me and the way she lived her life by example. Yeah. And how brave she was to make that trip. That's what just, wow. You think, you know, people making that trip today, obviously enormously brave. And you think, you know, without the a telephone. Yep. No cell phones, like no internet. Check. Yeah. Just to go by yourself yep. on, she on a bus. That's right. Isn't it? She was on a bus. No, she drove the car. They drove. The car. Oh, sorry. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, how, how brave. Yeah. And then your family settled in Jordan. Yeah. And I grew up there. I think I pretty much had an idyllic childhood, lots of cousins, lots of family around, uh, great schools, good friends. What did Jordan look like at that point, like visually, to give people an idea who who might have never seen a picture? So it was a city, but it wasn't as densely populated as now as maybe a million people max. Right. It was built around seven hills. There wasn't really a lot of traffic, not a lot of traffic lights even back then. We had roundabouts. And then towards the end of you know my high school there, we started getting traffic lights and then bridges. And I'm like, oh, this city's about to explode. Mm. It's in the desert, so very dusty. Not a lot of greenery. I think it's beautiful. Not as beautiful as Syria and maybe my Jordanian side, but the family would not like that statement. It was simple back then. You know, it's like you knew everyone in your neighborhood. My grandma lived five minutes from me one side, my dad's family five minutes the other side. There's positives and negatives to having family <laughs> near business all the time. And I think for me, it's like when I was starting to come to terms with my sexual orientation was when I was struggling to admit that the home that I'd always known was not going to be home for me forever. Because in, in the Middle East, you can get the death penalty for being gay. Honor killings are still very prevalent. And so I knew I knew I couldn't live there. And so what age would you have been? I mean, quite often on, on the pod, I ask people about sort of the first time they noticed someone of the same sex and thought, oh, I might be different. Was there a moment that you, because I think quite often, and I mean, even more impactful for someone that was in your situation. Yeah. But you, for me, I sort of noticed someone and went, oh, and then went, oh dear, oh dear, how am I going to deal with that? And I can only imagine how impacted that would be if you were living in a country like Jordan. But do you remember that moment? Yeah, I do. It was in elementary school. So I had a crush on this girl named Isabella and every boy in our class had a crush on her. She's a beautiful girl and sweet and kind. And so I was playing with my best friends, Justin and, and Michael and they're like, go ask her. I was like, go ask her what? They're like, go ask her who she likes. Is it me or Justin? Is, yes, one of them. And I'm like, internally, I was like, well, what about me? And I realized, oh, wait, I can't factor into this equation. 
And then I went and asked her, like, which of the two of them you like? And I was hoping she would say, no, not them. I like you. And, and that never happened. And I was like, yeah. And so it was like at a very early age. And there wasn't a word for it in Arabic. So that was really hard. And I was like, wait, am I a boy? Because I like girls. Right. No, but I'm a girl. And it was just so confusing. And then all the subtle messages that, you know, nope, you can't say that out loud. Like, oh, yes, I like her. and Or like a character on TV. You know, you're like, oh. You can't comment about how beautiful they are. Yeah. Yeah. And is there a word in Arabic for gay man? Uh, it's a derogatory term, more along the lines of like faggot, like khawad. Right. Yeah. 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 But there would have been a word that could sort of tell you how terrible it was. Yeah. Yeah. For someone that was like us, but different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so in elementary school, sorry, what age are you? That's sort of before you go up to high school, isn't it? Yeah. So that I was about, I'd say eight or nine that experience. I was really young. Yeah. Right. So as young as that. Yeah. Really young. But I think that's so common yeah. for so many of us well, to have those feelings there from very early on, but just you don't really have a name for them. Yeah. But we know it's wrong. Like we know the messages they're telling, nope, this can't be right. And that's what's so sad. It was like, as a kid, you're feeling these feelings that are natural and normal to everyone else. But we're told no. And so pure, because so often it comes before any sort of, on on the podcast before and with a lot of my sort of lesbian friends, we've spoken about sort of the intense female friendships of young girls <laughs> and yep. sort of the betrayal when they got a new best friend that was totally, <laughs> you know, huge, like, yeah, <laughs> catastrophic, <laughs> but maybe not as bad as we quite thought for the rest of the girls. <laughs> but was it at an early age that you thought, right, America, like, Paved with gold, a place of hope and a place where maybe I can be me. I mean, I think it wasn't until later, like the America I knew was from television and what my dad told me about. And so, yes, it was like, perfect, right? I watched E.T. I was like, look, they take in everyone, <laughs> right? Yeah, sure. Like they made it look perfect, right? But it wasn't until I was like 15, it was uh, like it, I had hit a really low point. I had um, attempted uh, suicide at that age. And after school, I would run to the library just to read and be alone. Like, that's a way for me to decompress before I start my sports practices. And so at 30 minutes, was in the library, and I grabbed a Newsweek magazine. And because I went to the American school, all the media coming in was not censored. It was what you would find in the United States. And I looked at it. The cover didn't look like the one my dad had brought home. I was like, like I noticed it was different. And so I started reading it, and there was an article in there about Martina Navratilova. And I mean, I remember reading, she lived her life as an open homosexual, and she was a successful athlete, and she lived in America. You know, and I was like, okay, if she can do it there, I can do it there. Before that, I was like, I didn't know. Like, I thought maybe England, because, you know, I had cousins that lived in England, I'd been there. But it wasn't until that moment where I was like, wait, someone can be true to who they are. They can live proudly. And, and she was unapologetic about it. Like no one at that time, no one. And I truly believe if I hadn't read that story, I don't know where I would be right now if it hadn't been for, for reading that and, and having that hope of it's okay. It's okay. Visibility is so impactful, isn't it? It can be just like the tiniest light in the darkness. Yeah that you go, I've got something to work towards, or like there's someone else that's like me. I think that's the thing, especially if you grew up somewhere where you don't know anyone else like you. I didn't know anyone else. And she was that light 
And she's never going to know that. Like her being out in the 80s and 90s, like I think just not on me, but like on people everywhere that were struggling were like, wait, and it is important to be visible. It is like, I understand being private, but you can still be visible and private about your life. I totally agree. I'm a stand-up by trade. That's my sort of job. So I do podcasts for, this is for joy. Yeah. This is to, to put out a bit of hope in the world. But my, my bread and butter is being a stand-up comic. And I will only ever be sort of unapologetically me on stage because there was no one, when I was a teenager, I just didn't know that it was possible to be happy and normal. And I'm a mum and I like talking about being a mum because <laughs> I, I it would have been groundbreaking for me to know that someone could be like me and happy. Like I knew that people could be like me and miserable. <laughs> yeah, but we knew that. Yes. Yeah. There's enough books. There's enough literature <laughs> that can tell you about the well of loneliness. But, but I mean, hope is just the most powerful thing. And so, did you decide then? Because you had like a really good education, and you're obviously super smart. Then you went over to Smith College, which is a really impressive college in the states. Was that your plan to go to one of those sort of? Is it like an Ivy League? I don't really know the terminology. Yeah. So it's the seven sisters. So it's, it's a really good school. My dad picked out my colleges. He said, if you don't get into these, you're not going. And so. Right. Okay. Sure. I'm an overachiever. Like that's always been the case. And yeah. I, I just read everyone your bio. I don't think you need to tell everyone that. I think <laughs> okay. we know. I think we know. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, it was great to be there. It was a women's college. It was, it was beautiful to be surrounded by women all the time who were strong and proud and struggling as well. And and to be free, like, I didn't realize how, how little freedom I had in the Middle East as a woman. Like, right. it's not even being gay. It's like, like I could go out and, and go out. Like, I didn't have my dad or my brother saying, no, you can't go out. I could travel from state to state. And Jordan, if I was to leave the country, my dad had to give permission. Your male guardian has to give permission for you to leave, even as an adult. And is that until a certain age? Nope. Until you get married, until you're transferred to another male. Wow. And then he can decide whether you can go or not. And then he decides whether you can go or not. And I'm like, and so even those small things, and then being able to like criticize the government and get into discussions. And I remember we were like sitting in the dorm room and we're discussing, it was like during the Monica Lewinsky, Clinton, and people were talking and they were like criticizing Bill Clinton. And I kept looking at the window, the door, waiting for the FBI to come in and arrest us because like. We couldn't have those discussions in Georgia. You can't criticize the government there. You're always like worried about that. And so there's these things that were incredibly beautiful about being in the United States and the freedom it gave and that I'd never take for granted because I, my memories of Jordan are still very strong on what I could, could not do. Yeah. And we spoke about your grandmother before about sort of her bravery crossing into another country. How much... Like when you look back at sort of the lineage of your family and the women within your family, obviously your dad must have been to a certain degree sort of open-minded in wanting you to go to a really good college because presumably for many women, education stops, right? Yeah, it stops. It stops when you go to Jordan University, you get married. Like I think to most people, he appears conservative, but to me he's progressive because he pushed me to play sports and I was playing sports in co-ed leagues because they didn't have girls teams. So I was playing with boys all the time and, and he valued education. My mom and grandma valued education. You know, my grandmother didn't like her. She completed fifth or sixth grade. That was her education. My mom finished high school and went to finishing school in Europe. And so their commitment was the granddaughters are all going to go to college. So all of us have gone to college. 
I'm not gotten advanced degrees. And so it's like, how do you break that cycle of like, okay, each generation should be better educated and have more opportunities than the first one. But they were all well-read. They loved reading. They loved traveling. So, yeah. How important, because obviously sport is a massive part that runs through the book and I'm, I'm quite into my sports. How important was that for you? You were saying before about you finding a moment to go and read where you saw that Martina Navratilova article and then going out to the sports pitch. Was that a place where you could feel a sense of freedom or a sense of calm? Yes, I could just be me, right? Like it's like you play a game. It's about performing, right? Like it's about your ability to play. You're not pretending to be something you're not. You really can't, you know, like you can't on the pitch. You're surrounded by others that have your back no matter what, like a good team. They've got your back. They don't care about anything. And you're constantly improving and you feel strong. You know, like during the day when you're feeling weak or emotionally drained, it's like that moment of like, I'm going to go run and play and just kick the ball or shoot the ball, like whatever it is. Yeah. It's powerful. Oh, it really is. I found that moment in the book really powerful, actually, where you talk about Oh, and, I'm, and now his name escapes me, the young man who got really angry and he just had to keep running around the pitch until he stopped being so angry. Until his heart stopped hurting. Yeah. Yeah. Until his heart stopped hurting. That's right. Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so, it's such a powerful thing to do for yourself, to just take yourself off and do something that is just for you. And like, obviously, physically, biologically, it has an impact as well. Yeah, but it is there is that sort of level of freedom. Just makes your shoulders come down, and yeah, makes you breathe. Yeah, so often I forget to breathe. <laughs> you know, it's such an important, it's such a stupid thing to say because it's so obvious. But we do. We hold all the tension. We're not breathing. Yeah, exactly. But on the pitch, you have to breathe. <laughs> you don't really have an option. Yeah, you got to breathe. And you know, sometimes like I've had players where or even teammates when they've had a really intense day or week and they start running and then everything just comes up. Like they start crying or like it just releases there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's beautiful and it's a space for you to be vulnerable as well, you know? And so when you got to Smith and you were sort of surrounded by all these women that had opinions and were strong and powerful, was there a moment where you saw gay women for the first time sort of in real life yeah I mean at the first dance at Smith you know and then at gay clubs like I was just kind of like I still remember my trip to my first gay club and I was like what this is awesome like what was it like what was the club like what did it look like it was dark it was smoky back then you could still smoke sure yeah of course it had like a mix of drag queens and gay men and women and I remember like going up to get a drink and this older woman, like more masculine, you know, looked at me and just nodded. It was just like an acknowledgement, like, yeah, we're here together. It felt like family. And mm-hmm. then, it, like, you felt free to dance with whoever you wanted and, you know, um, not have to pretend to dance with men or be interested in them, right? And it was just, it was more fun. Like, everybody just felt, like, free, right? There's no posturing, no pretending. and. Lots of singing at the top of, you know, like uh, We Are Family came on. I remember that came on. And, and then I Will Survive, you know, all these. Perfect. It's just like, perfect. This is so good, you know? Yeah. And during sort of those moments of ecstasy, singing along to songs, would there have always been a sort of a sense of 
trepidation that, well, this is who I can be here. And what about my family and the people that I love? And how am I going to fit into their life when I'm this person? Yeah. It was like that switching is like here I could be like that. When I went back to Jordan, I had to be a certain way. But then knowing that I would have to make that decision, you know, at age 22, I'd have to make that decision. And I, I applied for asylum my senior year in college. And that was a brutal experience. Yeah, it sounds really stressful. Because mm-hmm. you're guilty until proven innocent. Um, you know, you have to lay it all out. And then at age 22, like, I'm like, okay, like, I'm not going to have a family after this is done. And I remember receiving the, you know, you have, I had my interview a couple of days after my college graduation. So here I was at college graduation. Everybody's like, oh, what am I going to do next? You know, they're moving to New York or they've got internships or grad schools lined up. And I'm like, I'm going to interview like that's going to determine what I end up doing with my life. Yeah. The rest of your life. Yep. And and yeah, I only shared it with like a very close circle. And so I went on the interview and then 30 days later got the notification that I had been recommended for approval. How long was that 30 days? It was long. It was long. I would go to the mailbox every day. I'd call my attorney yeah. every day. And when I got the envelope, it was a thin envelope. And in my head, like, oh, yeah. You know, when you're getting college acceptances, the thick one is the one you want. And I was like, here, it's one piece of paper. And I remember opening it and reading it and then started sobbing because it was like one of the happiest moments of my life, but one of the saddest at the same time, because what it meant, it meant I could stay here and live and be free and be out, but I was going to lose my family and my home and my identity as a Jordanian. Like that was all gone. So, yeah. I mean, that must be something that you must witness quite a lot in your professional life now. Yeah. Sort of the holding of two identities. Yeah. Yeah. Which I can't even imagine. And it must be so difficult when there's such sort of joy linked to it in the, that you can be yourself. It's just. Yeah. I think that's why I ended up doing the work that I do is. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't think it's coincidental that I work with refugee and immigrant kids who have come to a country and are trying to make sense of it. Yeah and are trying to balance their identities and what is home and using the love of sport to make that happen and bring people together. Like it, it was hard. It was tough. But it's like, if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing now. So, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So I know that after Smith, you did a few different things, but the, I mean, the, the, the book is a memoir, of course, but to talk a little about Fuji families and what that is I don't want to butcher the language because you do it so beautifully in your book but you were driving and you saw a group of young well I suppose you didn't know it at the time but refugee children playing football but with a football that was sort of deflated it was raggedy it was deflated it was an old ball they had rocks set up as stones a couple of them were playing barefoot you know and it reminded me of home like that's how we grew up playing soccer in the streets and it was just a beautiful moment to see others play the way the game should be played without, you know, perfect pitches and coaches. It was just for the love of the game. And I'd been coaching club soccer at the time. And so I had a ball in my trunk. I came out with it. The boys wanted the ball. I wanted to play. We haggled, you know, and they reluctantly let me in and I ended up playing. And 
you know, they got the really short kid and the chubby one and we had the time of our lives. And they realized quickly that I was not American born by the way I pronounced their names. A lot of them had Arabic or Muslim names. And so when I say Urgola or Nurula, they're like looking at me and Lula is not an American name, right? And so getting to understand each other and our backgrounds. But the first group of boys I played with were from Liberia, Afghanistan, and Sudan. And it was just fun. And then we started a team and then the team grew into after school and eventually a school. And now we have multiple schools that we support around the country using, you know, the power of sport and the arts and community to bring people together and to celebrate everything about them. And I think when you've experienced not being celebrated or having to hide or not being able to bring your true self, then you know what it takes, what environment it takes to bring that out in people. It was something I was actually wondering as the book was going on, because of course, some of the young refugees that you coached and then you went on to teach, you know, many of them would have come from a country similar to Jordan, where, you know, the laws around homosexuality would be very extreme. And the whole time I was reading, thinking sooner or later, Luma is going to meet their family and then there'll be a moment when this is discussed. Yeah. But I wondered whether for you, you know, did that feel like a a second sort of trauma of what you had experienced at home with mm-hmm. sort of being in people's houses with the languages, with the the culture, the food, you know, was that similar in what you were saying about when you got the asylum to say like, part of it is very joyful and then the other half is very sad. Yeah, because it showed me what I didn't have. Like, yeah, I would be going to these strangers' houses and having family meals and the way I'm used to, you know, sitting on the ground and eating, but I could not have that with my family or I'd go home to an apartment alone. And then, you know, so I didn't come out to my players. I was kind of outed indirectly, right? And so I'd gotten married. But they had met your wife, right? They sort of knew her because she was around the school as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. They knew her. She was around the school. When they came to our house, she was there. Like, But it was never said out loud. And so after we got married, there's a photo on social media of our wedding. And the kids had seen it. And I got a call like, you know, after I returned to school from my after school coordinator. She's like, hey, this is going on. So the kids are upset. I don't know how to talk to them about it. I was like, well, it's not for you to talk to them about it. It's for me. And so the next day, you know, I came in a little later than usual. I think I was avoiding it. Yeah. Did you have a bad night's sleep, do you think? I did. I couldn't sleep. But I was like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to tell them and they're going to like disown me, like my family, like not have anything with me. Yeah. And then so toward the end of the day, I grabbed my three older players, my captains, my leaders, and, you know, they were like angry and like couldn't make eye contact. I'm like, come on in, let's, let's talk about this. And, and I said, listen, I know you're upset. I want to talk about this. And when I was like, why didn't you tell us? Yeah. Like that was his, like, why couldn't you tell us? And I was like, listen, I met most of you when you were 11 or 12. Like, what do you do? Hey, I'm your football coach and I'm gay. Like, like, what does that look like? Right. And I said, do you, I've never lied to you. You came to my house. You like, you saw where I slept. Like there was nothing in there. Um, and I said, but the main reason is I was afraid you would do what my family did was that you would not set me for who I am, you know, and then the room got really silent and while I was like, we're not your family, we're not like them. And he's like, why didn't you invite us to your wedding? And I was like, and it was kind of like a relief, right? Like, 
huge. I was like, I can't invite you to my wedding. I'm inviting all my players to my wedding. Like, a little nuts. <laughs> and then they're like, but now you got to go tell the big group, like the hundred other players that I coach. I'm like, what? And they're like, that's what we do. You know, we're struggling or like as a team, we just like, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is how I need help. And yeah, and that's beautiful in the book where you talk about when they, you know, they really bring their whole selves to a football session where, you know, if someone has messed up or behaved badly or done something yeah. that's regrettable, yep. they hold their hands up and they say sorry to the whole gang, the whole team, because ownership. Yeah. So I had to apologize for not being out. Yeah, it is ownership and it's your family. You don't want to damage relationships. Like, let's take responsibility. And so I did it. For the most part, had the same reaction, like upset about the wedding. Some people had questions about it. You know, one or two families were not super thrilled and they both withdrew their kids from the program, but the rest didn't. And now it's just known. Everyone just knows it. And I remember uh, like a couple of years after that, one of my after school staff members was visiting a family to check up on them and conservative Muslim uh, Sudanese family. And the dad was like, hey, I heard this about Coach Luma. Is it true? Like she's, and he didn't have the words for it. He's like, she's with a woman. They're married. They have like, we're about to have a kid. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, that's not okay. That's right. And he started going off. And then his wife came in and said, you need to shut your mouth because this woman takes care of your son better than you do. And so you need to stop this. We left Sudan for this kind of nonsense. And she just put him in his place. And we're good friends now. Like, with the dad, with the, like, but it was just awesome to see like a Muslim woman stand up to him and be like, stop this nonsense, like stop it, you know? And it's right, like don't bring some of that stuff, like all the bad stuff that we grew up around, don't bring it into your new home, you know? Mm. And similarly to us saying earlier about not seeing anyone like ourselves there and sort of even more so for you, you of course, when people are prejudiced and they don't have a frame of reference, mm -hmm for someone being a real human yep. person yep. who they can relate to. I think that's so much of, you know, how we move forward as a society is just, you know, you being visible will have changed so many hearts and minds of people that are different, you know, that aren't queer, but that, you know, see you as a full person rather than just your sexuality. Yeah. Which is so impactful. I mean, it is like they know who I am and for all of them, I'm the first person they they've known right and so oh like this isn't what I thought it was and you know like I have if thought at family's houses when I'm fasting like you know they still see me as an observant Muslim and they're just kind of like what is going on here but I think that visibility is like if you know someone it's about that person not about the stories or the sound bites you're hearing or the stereotypes you have or the misconceptions yeah or you know the tabloid press and the you know, the right-wing media, even now, you know, even in both of our countries that we're living in today, you know, it's, it's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's really bad. And I think about what damage that's doing to the young kids who are struggling. Oh, you know, for sure. Yeah. I was wondering, and if you're not comfortable answering this, then please don't, but we've had several different people on the podcast over the years talk about sort of how they've, how they own both their sexuality and their faith. Mm-hmm. Has that been something that's been a journey for you? And if it's something you're willing to talk about? Yeah, I mean, it has been a journey for me first, because I don't know many queer Muslims. Like, I just don't. And like, our faith is very like, this is good, this is bad, right? And Islam doesn't really have room, leave room for interpretation. 
right? You're not allowed to discuss it. You're not allowed to question it. In some ways, it's time for a reformation. You know, every faith has had one except Islam, like Judaism has had it, Christianity had it. We haven't had it and we need it. And what I come down to is like, you know, my grandmother was Muslim and she lived by example. And it was always about being kind and compassionate. Like that is the core of faith to her. And we start off, you know, every passage, every prayer with Bismillah Rahman Rahim, which means in the name of God, the most merciful, the most compassionate. And so if I can live my life in a way that is respectful to others around me, that is compassionate to others around me, that is forgiving, then that to me is the core of what Islam is. And I, you know, like I don't pray, I fast. Like I don't do my five prayers a day. I pray once a day and I fast, you know, every Ramadan. I did my pilgrimage. That was rough. Yeah, it was really hard because it wasn't what I thought it would be. But I identify as a Muslim. Like I believe like my values are from that, but not in the stereotypical way. I get to pick and choose which parts I align with because some parts I don't, especially the treatment of women. But I think there is so much room to go back to the purity of Islam, the essence of it, of it being a faith that is generous and forgiving and kind. And I think a lot of our faiths just get exploited to control, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's, I was like, wait, like, what is this about? Like, I need permission from my dad to leave the country. Like, that's about control. This is not about faith, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then like I've read the Quran and I was like, you know, it's like, everyone's like, well, Muslims can't drink. I was like, well, we can drink. We can't get drunk. So it's nuanced, right? And so it's like, let's pay attention to like what it really says before we start. And we've seen it. Like we've seen it in Saudi and, you know, other parts of the Middle East, like really control people. Well, I don't believe religion should be controlling people. It should be freeing people. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I wrote that down earlier, but I didn't know, you know, some things are private and I didn't want to, you know, dig into anything that you weren't comfortable talking about. I've wanted to ask sort of now that you're sort of in schools all over the country and the Fuji families are sort of this big thing that exists in the States, is the aim now for it to be cross-country or is it to be, like, what's the next thing for you? Which I know I'm saying to you, like, (laughs) when you've just written a book and you must be so busy and you must be like, please, Susie, I am already exhausted. (laughs) You know, you've got this amazing sort of framework to help child survivors of war to integrate into not just integrate into life, but to sort of thrive. Yeah. What's what's the next thing? I think for us, it's like, can we grow nationally and do it really well? Uh, you know, does it become international? Do we go into places that need this even more? For me, it's like, we want to go into the places that need it the most. We want to serve the kids that need it the most. But I also believe a lot of what we do can be applied for all kids not just refugee and immigrant kids. Like, how do you create an environment where kids feel safe and they belong and they're embraced? Then you'll see them thrive. Then you won't have behavior issues in school. And so I think a lot of what we do, every kid, every school would benefit from. And so is that the next step where schools start saying, hey, we see you doing this program for a subset, but we want it done for everyone. Yeah, because that's the thing, you know, for schooling to be so... I mean, I don't know very much about the schooling system in the States at all. I obviously went to school in the UK, but, you know, it's so much one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I think my English teacher would be astonished that I'm a professional writer because I didn't fit the criteria of how to do that at school. And that was the thing that 
you know, within the book is that everything seems so personalized. It has to be personalized. We're all so different. Our brains work differently, you know, like our passions are different. And yet we're like, nope, you're doing these courses this way and that's it. And if you don't, then you're a failure. And it's like, that's not true. Like people think differently. My three kids think differently. They like things different. They process differently, but they have the same school system, you know? And it's like, we have the capacity to personalize. We personalize in every other aspect of our life. Yeah. Right? Totally. So why can't we personalize in our schools? And then kids will be more engaged. And then we have kids all performing at their peak, right? So if you different way of learning about writing to bring it out, you should have had that. Not the same standard five paragraph. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'll leave you to go on with, I'm sure you're a very, very busy day. So I ask everyone that comes on the show, it's kind of a, you know, what would you say to your 14 year old self? And I may be thinking about that version of you that had just seen the magazine about Martina Navratilova. And if you don't want to think of yourself, maybe someone is listening to this podcast right now. And in some way they relate to that feeling that you were having right there. If you could reach out and through the world of podcasting, pop your arm around them and give them a bit of a hug and give them a bit of advice, what would you say? I would say first, I'm not a hugger, but I'm going to hug them. I will hug them though. That's okay. That's fine. It can be a fist bump. It can be a handshake. It can be whatever you like. Yeah. But I will um, tell them like it's it's going to get better. There are so many of us out there like you and our doors are always open for you. But if you don't have a home somewhere, you always have a home with us. And it will get better. Perfect. That was great. Thank you so much, Lima. Thank you. Oh, I loved that episode. I really hope that you did too. If you want to get in touch with me, you always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I will be back next week. I've got two more episodes in this series and then there'll be a little break from out. But I really hope that you're enjoying this series as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I am on tour at the moment, so if you wanted to come and see me, there's a small handful of dates left. I'll let you know where I'm going. I'm going to Basingstoke, Peterborough, Folkestone, Northampton, Aberdeen, Dundee, Newbury, Brighton, Bury St Edmunds and London. Some of those shows are sold out, but it is always worth ringing the venue to see if they've got any returns. Okay, I'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, look after yourself. Bye. Bye.